I've entitled this message, It's Time to Get Out of the Cocoon and Fly. Because I think most of us spend all of our lives in a cocoon. A nice, little, safe place that we control. And it's warm in there, and it's safe in there, but you can't go very far and you definitely don't see very much. And God has so much more for each one of us. In talking with Ellen and Liz this week, uh, they were sharing their heart with us. And, you know, when, when a couple go off to the mission field, we think, oh, that's nice. They go off to serve God, you know, and we take up offerings and we support them. And that's nice, they, that's their thing, and this is our thing. But I don't think we reali really realize the cost involved in serving God. Most of us live in a house. Probably a good half to two-thirds of us own that house or are on the way to owning that house. Ellen and Liz have no place to call their own. They sold their house to go on the mission field. And when they stood up on last week or the week before, when they stood up here and said they feel home here, what they're really saying to you is that they have no physical home. You do. Every single one of you have a physical home. Just like Jesus said, they have no place to call their own. If they live in a place, it's because someone's let them live there or they're with somebody else. When they go to Birmingham, they pay for the privilege of working in Birmingham. They are not paid to do that work. They pay for their food, they pay for their lodging, and it's not their own. That's the true cost of discipleship. When we're prepared to say, God, I have nothing except my life and I give it to you. And this is where we're going this morning. So if you want to get out, now's the time. Because that's where we're going this morning. There is a cost in discipleship. There is a cost in Christianity that I think in the Western world we really miss. Because it's so easy to be a Christian here. You might not think it is, but it is. Try going to Iraq and being a Christian. Or Pakistan or even Birmingham. Who are we in Christ? What has Jesus done for us? How do we become everything that God has created us to be? That's what Paul is really aiming at in the book of Romans. He's step by step beginning to unpeel like a banana, to unpeel everything that God has done for us on the cross. He's taking it to pieces, little by little, and that's why Romans is quite complicated, because there's so much that God has done for us. How can you put it in one book? And so Paul is, is, is unpeeling it, layer after layer, probably not a banana, more like an onion, layer upon layer, 
to show us what God has done for us. What is ours if we would just take hold of it? And all we need to do is trust him and receive it by faith. We can't work for it. We can't make it happen. We can't do anything except take it. And once again, with our Western mindset, we have trouble with that. We, we feel we've got to earn things. We've got, to, we've got to do stuff to get something. And yet this gift has already been paid for on the cross. Jesus paid it all. Our job is just to take it. See, it's so important we understand who we are in Christ, what it is we take when we take that gift. And as we do, we're released to be the church that Jesus has created. And the work that God has done in us isn't just for us and isn't just about us. Most of us are wrapped up, I know this sounds a bit rude, but we're wrapped up in ourselves, aren't we? We go through situations and we, we are always thinking, how is this going to affect me? Hmm? Well, if they do that, how will that affect me? That, we, we've, we've grown up thinking about ourselves. When, when we're little children, our parents do everything for us and we become egocentric. Everything is about me. If I want an ice cream, the world is falling down until I get an ice cream. Isn't that right? Unfortunately, there's a lot of adults still like that. But the Christian message is not about me. It's about us. It's a message of the church, not the individual. And we in the Western world have individualized the gospel. And it was never meant to be about individuals. It was meant to be about a people. God creating a people, a new family for himself. And so Paul now turns his attention to the church. He's dealt with what God has done for us. He's dealt with what Jesus has done on the cross, how we receive that. And now he's turning his attention to the church. He's saying, people, this is what it is all about. It is all about the church. It's all about God creating a new people who will serve him, a new people who will honor him, a new people who will reveal his glory upon this earth. His glory will not be revealed through individuals, it will be revealed through people. So what should this church look like? I'm sure when Paul wrote this, he didn't have in mind anything like we have. Wouldn't even have entered Paul's head that the church would end up looking like this. Or like First Church downtown. Or like the cathedral. Or any of the other cathedrals on this planet. Those would not have entered Paul's head. The, the church was not a building. The church was not a gathering place. The church was a people. So what should this church look like? What should it be doing? 
How should this church behave day by day? That's where we're going in Romans chapter 12. Now, before we get into Romans chapter 12, I need to quickly mention Romans 9 to 11 because you're aware we haven't gone there. And we're not going to go there. Not because I don't like Romans 9 to 11. Two reasons. I want to actually get through Romans before I die. (laughs) And the second reason is Paul in Romans 9 to 11 addresses one question that was bothering this local church. Yes, the message of the cross is great. What Jesus has done for us on the cross is great. New life in Christ is great. But what about the Jews? What about the Jewish nation? Has God given up on them? They have given up on God. Has he given up on them? Is there a future for the Jewish nation? That's what Romans 9 to 11 covers. And Paul basically says this. I'll give it to you in about two sentences, but he takes three chapters or four chapters to do it. Three. Paul in Romans chapters 9 to 11 basically says this, that no, God has not given up on the Jewish nation. He still has a plan for them. But that plan is opened through the cross. If the Jewish nation do not, and the Jewish people do not come to Christ through the cross, they cannot enter into the plan he has for them as a people. That's basically what Paul is saying. They enter through the same door as we enter through. And if they would enter through that same door as we enter through, they will be opened up into what it means to be the people of God, just like we know. And yes, God is going to revisit the Jewish nation, but it's going to be through a revival through the cross, not through a temple or through sacrifice or any of that kind. That's basically what he says in Romans 9 to 11. That salvation is through faith in Christ. No other way. For the Jew, also for the Gentile. But I want us to go to Romans chapter 11, because this last little bit of that section leads us into Romans chapter 12 and what we look at from there on. Romans 11 verse 33, this isn't in the notes, I've just added it in later. Paul ends this section of Romans 9 through 11 with a what's called a doxology, which is really just a a song of praise. And he lifts up his voice and he begins to declare what's really on his heart. And this is what he says. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is one of the most amazing little passages in Scripture. Here Paul is declaring the greatness, the splendor, the glory of God. He's putting everything in perspective. He says, you think God owes you? God doesn't owe you anything. You owe him everything. You couldn't possibly pay for what he's done for you. He has done so much. He is awesomely great. And for from him and through him, 
and to him are all things. In that little phrase, we have the crux of whether we are going to find that more or not. We only find that more if we're prepared to acknowledge God for who he is in our lives. Who is God? Is he there for me? Or am I here for him? Is this world about me or is this world about him? Is my future about me or is my future about him? Is the church about us or is it about him? And Paul clearly says it's about him. He is the center. He is the author. He is the finisher. Revelation finishes with this. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's everything, not just a convenient slice. And that leads us on to Romans chapter 12. We need to say that because without it, Romans chapter 12 gets quite difficult. It's got some difficult demands in it. It's got some difficult challenges. And unless we get that clear who God really is, those challenges we struggle with. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Let's look at it. Therefore, I urge you, brothers. Brothers is just a generic term for people. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Whoa. Therefore, that little word just tells us that Paul is basing what he's going to say on what he has said, particularly in that doxology we've just read. Therefore, because of who God is, because of his greatness, because he is the center of the universe, and because of what he, out of love, has done for us on the cross, because of what Jesus has done for us, because of his great mercy, because of his great love, and because of his greatness, therefore, this is our response. Therefore, he says, I urge you. Now, the word urge is not just a, well, this is a good idea, you know. Wouldn't it be a great idea if you thought about doing this? No, he says, I urge you. This, is a, this is, literally means I beg you. It's the, it's the sort of attitude that a coach has at half time when his team's not doing well. They've gone into the, into the, into the changing sheds at half time and they're 50 nil down. And the coach loses his rag and he just goes for it and he urges them. You guys, you've got to pick up your game. You are going to be dead meat. You've got 40 minutes to prove that you are worthwhile human beings. This is the kind of language Paul is saying. He says, come on, guys, I urge you, because of who God is, because of what God has done for you, I beg you, you've got the rest of your life to demonstrate the greatness of what he's done. 
I urge you. What is he begging us to do? What is the appropriate response of a human being to a God like this? What's the appropriate response of a human being who has had so much done for them? And that is why Paul has taken so much time in Romans to, to, to show us what God has done for us, to show us what is ours in Christ, because there's an appropriate response to that. And we can never make that appropriate response unless we understand the gift. I've, I've shown you before, I haven't got it with me this morning, but several years ago I was given a pen. Remember that pen? A black pen. And I opened the box and thought, oh, a pen. I didn't know that what I held in my hands was $800. It was a pen with a little Swiss cross on the top, little white Swiss cross. I'm too scared to use the thing. The refills cost 15 bucks. So it sits in my drawer. Too expensive to use because I lose. <laughs> I try to leave pens all over the place. And I'm not leaving that one all over the place. You see, I had no idea of its value. It, to me, it was just a pen, and honestly, it still is. And that's the way we treat our salvation. We're given it. We say, oh, God, that's nice. Fancy doing that for me. What's for dinner? Can I fries with that? Oh, God, that's great. But what about a car park? Oh, God, you've been so good to me, but I would like a husband. How about paying off my mortgage? Winning bonus bonds would be nice. We, 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 we so easily devalue what we have because we don't understand it. And Paul says, you need to understand what you have. You need to understand who your God is because there's an appropriate response when you've been given everything. What is that response? Therefore, he says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, here it is, a new level of commitment, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Do you want to hear this or should we go home? To offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, he was talking to people who understood the Jewish system. Half of them were Jews. The other half understood perfectly well the idea of sacrifice. They were pagans. They were Gentiles. They were into sacrifice as well. They understood that when you took an animal and you took it into the temple or the place of sacrifice, you cut its throat, it gave its life, and you burnt it there. They understood what a sacrifice was. For that animal, it involved giving everything. There wasn't a bit held back. The lamb didn't come in and say, oh, you can have my tail. 
Well, I'll even give you a leg. It's the whole thing. Once you're on the altar, no turning back. And Paul says that's the kind of response to a God like that, who has given you everything, is total sacrifice. Now, he's not saying you need to kill yourself on the altar. That's ridiculous. But there's something more important than that. It's laying down of our whole self. He says, I urge you to offer your bodies. I beg you, offer your bodies. Offer your whole self. Everything you are, everything you do, your past, your present, your future, your dreams, your hurts, everything, offer them to him. Lay them on the altar. See, the normal Christian life only starts at this point. Before then, it's abnormal. If we haven't come to this place this morning, we are not living a normal Christian life. Because Paul says the, the ultimate reaction or the ultimate response to what God has done for us is, God, I give it all. Now, Paul didn't just talk about it, he did it. In Philippians 3, 7 to 14, he talks about his life. He says, everything I was, everything I am, I consider it as dung. I consider it as rubbish in comparison to what God has done for me. And I lay down my life. And I, I strive, I strive forward to what God has done and what he has for me. And I lay everything back behind me. I don't want that anymore. I give everything to him. He lived it. And what do we find about Paul? His life was a life of power. We see a normal Christian life in Paul. When Paul prayed for the sick, they were healed. When Paul moved into an area, there was revival. When Paul was beaten and in jail, all heaven showed up. Wasn't because he sang well. Wasn't because he had a good band behind him. Paul and Silas with their backs ripped open, bleeding, were in the stocks, worshipping God. And the angel of God came in there and... Why? Because Paul was living a normal Christian life. That's normal for Christianity. What we have is abnormal. See, this morning in our worship, this is what should have happened. You ready? What should have happened is every person would be just lost in God because they're giving all, you know. Oh, I'm tired. I don't care if I'm tired. God deserves all. The baby's kept me awake all night. I don't care. Today I'm giving God all and we're worshiping God with our all. And God is so pleased. The angels are so pleased that the manifest glory fills the place and not a person can stand on their feet. The glory of God breaks out. That's normal. What we have is not normal. What we have is not the church that God intended. 
The church that God intended is a church full of power. Where they go, the signs follow. But it only comes... Paul says, therefore I urge you to offer your whole selves as a living sacrifice, keeping nothing back. That's the ultimate and appropriate response. And Paul even goes on to say something about it. He says, if you do that, that's your spiritual act of worship. Do you want to know what worship really is? It's giving all to him. Do you know what worship is? It's when we were sitting down with Liz and Ellen in a coffee bar the other day, and Liz looked at me with pain in her face and said, we haven't got a place of our own. I tell you, you, you can't tell me it doesn't hurt. You can't tell me it doesn't hurt looking around and seeing all we have, and they now have nothing. And they know that in 20 years' time, they're going to come back to this, wherever they're going to live, with nothing. That hurts. That's laying down everything. But it hurts the body. It hurts the flesh. But you're prepared to do it because God is everything. And really, it's only stuff. And what stuff are we going to take with with, with us when we die? None of it. I won't be taking my car with me when I die. It's not worth anything anyway. I won't be taking my house with me when I die. When I go into the presence of God, I go with just me and what I have given Him. I sometimes think the amount we've given Him, we get to take with us. Think about that for a moment. If you don't like what I just said, go to the parable of the talents. I think we get to take with us what we've given him. If we've given him everything, we get to take that everything with us into eternity. If we've given him nothing or just a tiny bit, we just get that tiny bit to go into heaven with. Study your Bible. Think if you agree with me or not. I'm not saying that's that's just my thoughts. True worship is not singing a song. True worship is not playing a keyboard, as marvelous as that is. True worship is not playing the drums or the bass or the electric guitar. True worship is not doing any of that. True worship is giving everything to Jesus. Even though it costs. You know, I've never felt so happy as we felt driving out of Martin with just our car and a trailer behind us and our stuff going to live in Auckland with no income. Annette had to get a job, but I had no income coming in. And we've never felt so happy because we were serving God. We sold our house in Auckland to move here. A year after we sold our house, house prices doubled in Auckland. 
Our 480,000 house was now worth a million. I'm still happy. I'm even happier that Dunedin prices are rising, but I'm still happy. You see, happiness is not dependent on what you have. Happiness is dependent on what you give. (laughs) Now, I've taken time over that because this next bit you can't do unless you do the first bit. This is only two verses. It's it's so little, but it's so big. We can't do the next part of what Paul says unless we do the first bit, unless we're prepared to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. This, This next bit is near on impossible. Let's look at it. We've looked at a new level of commitment. Now we come to a new way of living. Verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Let's stop there. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Basically, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Now, whether we like it or not, we are all squeezed into the mold of the world in which we live, aren't we? We think, we act, we dress like the world says we should. More interested in what the latest fashion is because we want to be what the world says we should be. I'm not saying that's wrong, I'm just saying that's what is. You know, if, if you are a Pacific Islander, or probably of Asian nationality, when you walk into your house, you'll take your shoes off. Am I right? Why do you do that? Because your world says that's what you do. True? I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It just is. If you're a European, you just bowl in. Why do you do that? Because your world says that's what you do. When somebody gives you something, what do you say? Thank you. Why do you say thank you? Because your world says that's what you do. We are conformed. Now, that's a right thing to do, right? But we are squeezed into the mold in which we live. Our whole life is spent wondering whether we fit in or not, particularly if you are between the age of 15 and 25. I'm not being critical. I was that age once myself. And you go to school and you just want to fit in. If you don't fit in, you're lame. You've got to have one of these. And you've got to be on Instagram. It's off. There's nothing wrong with that. But it becomes something that we have to fit in with. We are squeezed into a mold. So to take the selfie, you've got to have the... Huh? You know. And we spend hours practicing the selfie face. 
so that every selfie looks... Oh. Why? Because we want to fit in. That's not wrong. just is. But Paul's saying, don't let the world squeeze you into a mold that's not the mold you are meant to be. Because there are things about this world that are going to stop you becoming a normal Christian if you allow them to squeeze you. See, this world is not our model. This world is not our master. We have got to decide what direction we go in, not the world around us. We have to decide what our lives are going to look like, not the world around us. Someone's just texted me. I feel it in my pocket. We must decide who we will follow, not the world around us. I was told by someone I respected that I would be stupid to go to Auckland. Now, I'm sorry, but even if I respect you, you are not going to make my decisions for me. No person is going to make my decisions for me. I will do what God is calling me to do. And if you don't want me to do something, you the best thing you can do is tell me not to do it, and I'll do it. That's just my rebellion. I want to read this quote by N.T. Wright. I thought this was brilliant. We need to figure out how to think, how to speak, and how to act in a way that is appropriate for the new age we are breaking into, not the one we're breaking out of. Think about that for a moment. We need to start to change. We need to be able to fit our lives into the world we are entering into, not the world we are leaving. Because the world we are leaving is dying. The world we are coming into is is living and active and beautiful. We need to fit our lives, so, so sort our lives out that they fit into that, not into that. Don't let this world squeeze you into its mold. Paul says, but if I haven't given everything to him, then I value this world. And I find it so hard to let go. Am I right? Too right, I'm right. (laughs) We're called to be countercultural. Not rude, but we're called to think through every aspect of our lives to challenge areas that don't bring us into life. There are things of this world that will not bring you into life. We need to challenge those. If there's things we are doing that don't bring us into life, we need to challenge those. I tell you, I'm tempted just like you are tempted. And every time I am tempted by whatever tempts me, I have to say to myself, that doesn't bring me into life. I'm not going to do that. Oh, but you want to. You know you want to. It's so nice. You'll miss out if you don't. And I've got to say, no, that will not bring me into life. I will do this. But I won't do it if I haven't offered my body as a living sacrifice. So how are we going to do that? Let's look at the rest of the verse. Don't let Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be 
transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word transformed is an interesting little word. It's actually the Greek metamorpho, which is the, word we, the Greek word that metamorphosis comes from. Scientists, what's metamorphosis? It's change of life form from one state to another. It's the little worm, little caterpillar going into a cocoon, curling up, forming a cocoon around itself. And within that cocoon, metamorphosis takes place. Now, when I was a kid, I used to like raising monarch, uh, not monarch, um, emperor gum moths. You know the big things with the great big circles on their wings? Do you get them down in the South Island? Oh, in, in, in Fielding, we used to get them. And, and, and they're, they're big. The moths are about this size. Great big hairy brown things with beautiful spots on their wings. And the, and the, the caterpillars are ugly. They're, they're, they're green things that go about this long and they've got spikes on. And with red bits on the end of the spikes. And the caterpillar eats and 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 becomes monstrous and fat. And then it gets to the stage where it's ready. It curls up into a ball. It finds a spot, curls up into a ball, and, and becomes this brown case, cocoon. And it stays there. And it stays there. And it stays there. And it looks like it's all over, over. You know, from the outside, you look at it, it's just a brown. Now, when I was a kid, I was impatient. <laughs> and I wanted to help it out. So I would, I would do a little bit of cutting and digging for the thing, you know. And you know what happened? The thing would come out like this. And that's how it stayed. Why? Because metamorphosis had been suspended. I had cut the cycle. You see, within that cocoon, the process of metamorphosis takes place where it turns from a caterpillar into a beautiful flying moth or butterfly. And metamorphosis is done in the dark. Metamorphosis is done in an enclosed space. But metamorphosis, it's important that it continues to its final place if the butterfly is going to be everything it's supposed to be. You're not meant to interrupt metamorphosis. You're not meant to have your own way in metamorphosis. You've just got to let it happen. And there's a process whereby it happens. You can't put your own thing in there. It's a complete transformation from one state to another. And God's desire for each one of us is that we would enter into and experience metamorphosis where we come into Christianity in one state and we move into the beauty of what he's forming in us. Metamorphosis. How does metamorphosis happen? Paul gives us the answer here. Be transformed, be metamorphosed by the renewing of your mind. 
we all think really it should happen like this, you know, we go up on an altar call, and, and then you prayed for a metamorphosis. That's not how it happens. You go up on an altar call, you're prayed for, and you walk away the same, pretty much. Am I right? Oh, God will touch you. Things will happen. But metamorphosis is much bigger than that. Metamorphosis takes place over a period of time as we respond to the process. What is the process? The renewing of your mind. Who renews your mind? Does God renew your mind? Or do you renew your mind? I've just asked two questions. I'm going to give you the answer in a minute. What Paul's saying is metamorphosis happens when we deal with our wrong thinking. It's way back to giving your body as a living sacrifice again. As we lay down our wrong thinking and pick up his thinking, change happens. Now, I want you to know it works. Because as I have surrendered my thinking and begun to pick up what God thinks about things, I change. See, I had a certain way of thinking about giving. I'm not giving. That was my thinking. I worked hard for that. You're not getting it. Who the heck do you think you are? offering. But as I looked at what God's word said and thought, ah, maybe God knows more than me. And I started to accept what he said is true and what I thought is not true. Change happened in me. Not just I gave, but change happened within me. There was a, a transformation within. I became more generous. Something, and it went beyond giving, it went into my heart, into my spirit. I began to change as I began to submit myself in every area that God challenged me to his thinking and not my own. Forgiveness is another one. You don't know what they did to me. And God's answer is, forgive them. That's what the word of God says. I'm not going to. I'm going to stab them. God says, forgive them. But they deserve to die slowly. I'll start with the kneecaps. God says, forgive them. Why should I forgive them? Because it's not about them, it's about you. And you're never going to be free until you let them go. Forgive them. And as I said, oh, I suppose you know more than me, said, all right, I will forgive. Now, I probably had to do it 400 times, but eventually it got through. And you know what? I was free. Totally, completely free. 
And I could go up to that person that I really wanted to assassinate, and I'm serious, and I could hug them and even say, I love you. And under my breath, I say, I don't like you one little bit, but I love you. I don't have to like you. I don't have to like what you have done to me, and I don't have to like what you do to other people, but I choose to love you, and I choose to set you free. And when I set that person free, I became free. And I began to change within myself to becoming more of what God wanted me to be. You see, it's a process. Each thing God challenges us about, if we will accept his way of thinking ahead of our way of thinking, and if we will take on what he says rather than what we say, we begin to change. It's a process. Transformation. Metamorphosis. One state to another as we surrender our will for his will, our ways for his ways, our thoughts for his thoughts. What does Isaiah say? Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. My ways are higher than your ways, says the Lord. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. What he's saying is choose my ways. Choose my thoughts because my ways and my thoughts lead you to life. Your own just leave you in death. So who renews our mind? We do. By choosing to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, by choosing to accept what he says rather than what we say. Where, where do we know what he says? Now I know very well that some of you don't like some things that are in here. But I want you to know if God says it, then I believe it. And I choose to base my life on it. And I've lived long enough now to see people not doing it and seeing what it does for them. The only people who find real life are those who live their lives submitted to what God says. So we learn to base our thought processes on God's word. What does God think about you? What does God think about those around you? What does God think about the important issues of life? What does God think about the church? What does God think about the world? What does God think about your past? What does he think about what you're doing now? <laughs> what does he think about your future? Let God's word be our pattern. And that's countercultural because the longer this world goes, the less it's like particularly New Zealand. The longer New Zealand goes on, the less it's like what God's word says. Government hasn't finished yet. There's more laws to come. But it's not what the government says. It's not what this world says. It's what God says. And some things won't agree with our way of thinking, you know. But we've got a choice to deliberately Choose his thoughts ahead of our own. His ways ahead of our own. Particularly when they clash. That's where the living sacrifice comes in. Do I have clashes with God? Quite often. 
But he's got to win or we lose. (laughs) So transformation, life change is the result. The Holy Spirit able to work his transforming power within us. There's no barriers to his power in a church like that. As the church adopts a life of total surrender and commitment, chooses to live differently to the world around us, allows the Spirit of God to transform us as we choose to adjust our thinking to fit in with his, then we have a church full of power, full of the light of God, able to change a world that so desperately needs change. It's time to get out of the cocoon and fly. For some of us, it's time to get in the cocoon. And I know we've all got questions. Well, if I do that, what, 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 what about, what if? It's time to not worry about what if, but who am I walking towards? Who is he? How great is he? What has he done for me? No response is too small or too big for a God like that.